Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. Later today in the United Kingdom, a court will be reviewing over the span of two days a high court decision uh, made to extradite Julian Assange to the United States. This could be the final appeal, the final hearing that Julian Assange has before he's sent over here to the United States. At the center of the controversy over the extradition in the court proceedings has been whether or not Julian Assange will be tortured, will be mistreated here in the United States, whether or not he will be put in solitary confinement and specifically in what's known as a CMU, a communications management unit. Now, the Department of Justice sort of pretended to make some kind of offering uh, to the UK High Court that they would not do this. But then in the very next sentence of their pleading, they said, unless we decide that we actually would need to do this. So to talk today about what a CMU is and why this has been the focus of human rights advocates who are concerned that he may actually wind up in one of these, uh, we're going to be joined by Martin Gottesfeld, who himself has spent a significant amount of time in an American CMU. Marty, thank you so much for joining me on Deconstructed. I'm happy to be here, Ryan. And so, Marty, before we get to your uh, your experience in, in the CMU, let's talk about you know, how you wound up in prison in the first place, because I actually think that's that's relevant to this conversation, because it does appear like this is a place where a lot of people who are, you know, essentially political prisoners wind up. Yeah, um, and I was not the only one, although I do think my, my case is um, representative uh, of the larger group, uh, largely representative of the larger group. So the government alleges that I am a master hacker with Anonymous. The government also alleges that during a 2014 uh, human rights and child custody matter, uh, I launched one of the largest uh, distributed denial of service DDoS attacks that the government had ever seen uh, to try to free Justina Pelletier, who was being held against her will and against her parents' will in a Boston Children's Hospital psych ward and then in various residential facilities throughout the state. Um, the case reached the very highest levels of the political system with people on both sides or um, parties on both sides of the aisle commenting on it. Um, Mike Huckabee, Sean Hannity, others on the right, uh, and then the Massachusetts HHS Secretary uh, Polanowitz, he actually ended up getting involved from the left uh, to eventually send uh, Justina home, which is where most people felt she belonged the entire time. And uh, before that case, I had been involved, I don't want to say with, but I guess kind of alongside uh, Anonymous protesting the American troubled teen industry. Uh, which is also just a political lightning rod and been subject to congressional hearings, GAO reports, uh, media exposés for well over a decade uh, for the torture and, and death of American children for profit. And so your journey in federal custody actually began in, in New York. Talk about that a little bit before we get to the CMU, because you actually wrote a piece for us about 
what it was like in the first jail you were in. And if I recall correctly, wasn't Chapo there too? So uh, that wasn't my my first jail. I was arrested in Florida. And then I made a very long uh, extended journey through the federal system to get back to the Northeast. And then um, I started writing for the Huffington Post back when you were the DC bureau chief. And very shortly after I began writing for the Huffington Post and started a hunger strike seeking pledges from the presidential candidates in the 2016 election uh, to curtail institutionalized abuse against children and political prosecutions, uh, the Justice Department transferred me to uh, MCC New York, the Metropolitan Correctional Center New York, and it's 9 South Shoe and 10 South Sam's unit. And that is where Chapo was held at the time. It's also where Jeffrey Epstein later died. And the communications program they have in those units is kind of connected at the hip to the CMUs. It's run by the same so-called counterterrorism unit inside the U.S. Federal Bureau of Prisons, which is part of the Justice Department. And yeah, I wrote a piece um, there for the Huffington Post, several pieces actually, um, about that facility, calling on public officials to, to do something to reform the facility, uh, because I foresaw even in 2016 that people were going to die there. And then sure enough, a few years later, Jeffrey Epstein died there. It was my sense that your your willingness to, to write for us, both at the Huffington Post and then later at The Intercept, while you were behind bars, was one of the things that led to you eventually getting moved to a full-on CMU. Do you think that that's accurate? What do you, what do you think drove the decision-making that got you stuck in that hole? Oh, I definitely think it was the journalism. 12 days after my first Intercept article was when they transferred me to the CMU. Mm -hmm. And that Intercept article was about El Chapo, his confinement, the conditions of his confinement, the human rights violations. And, and that was what directly precipitated the move to the CMU. And then on top of that, when they, when they transfer you to a CMU, there's not really a lot of due process involved in that decision, and the courts have tolerated that. Um, but they do have to give you this kind of one-page uh, paper with a supposed justification, right? And mine just basically said, you know, you're a member of Anonymous. Anonymous is this group that we have to watch. So therefore, we're putting you in a CMU. The problem with that, of course, is that there were other guys in the federal prison system associated much more with Anonymous than, than I was, uh, who never were placed in a CMU. Um, so like Jeremy Hammond was one, and um, I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name, but he, he wrote for The Intercept a lot, but his articles didn't really challenge like federal judges, challenge like federal prosecutorial discretion. He just kind of satirized the whole thing. Uh, and, and they were very good, but they didn't really make people uncomfortable the way my writing made people uncomfortable. I named names right. and I named facilities and... You know, I named specific human rights violations, and, and that, I think, made them very uncomfortable. And I can tell you, too, from how I was treated in the other cases that were there, which I, I guess we'll get into in a little while, it, it certainly seems that I was placed there to suppress my First Amendment protected conduct. Right. And so where were you sent, and what's the place like as you first get there? I spent time in both CMUs. There are two in the federal system. I was first sent to Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, and that's kind of the first, and that's the harsher of the two CMUs. Uh, and then later I spent time in the CMU in Marion, Illinois. When you first walk into the CMU, uh, it's a relatively small unit. There were only about 30 guys there when I first got there. This is the Terre Haute one. Yes, the Terre Haute one. Um, it's actually the old federal death house. So they built a new federal death row elsewhere in the compound. 
and then they put the CMU uh, in the old federal death house. So like I've been inside Timothy McVeigh's cell and there are guys who say they've like seen the old electric chair in the basement that like they have not moved that. And you can actually see the, the new death house. Like we have a very small quote unquote outdoor rec area, right? Where you, where you can go and get fresh air, but they make sure that like within sharp view of that, that place, like whenever you're outside, you see the actual building um, where in 2020 and 2021, they killed 14 people. What is your cell like? Because this is the place that people assume we will send Julian Assange if, if the U.S. successfully extradites him. The cells are very small. They were uh, built in a former era. They weren't built. The building itself dates to like the 1930s. And they were, they were built, I think, for a single person, even back then. So the, the cells do not actually meet the minimum square footage that the Bureau of Prisons publishes in its own policies uh, in terms of uh, like how much, the minimum needed for a human being. And then what they did is they, they went in and they retrofitted an, a bunk bed onto, onto each one so that they can double up. And, and they did do that in the time that I was there. It's a sardine can and it's, it's smaller than you would get elsewhere uh, in the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, it's a concrete and brick uh, building without air conditioning. So in the summer, you just bake. And if there's like a lockdown and you're not out of your cell for three or four days, you're, they're just baking you. You're, they're just cooking you like a, like a turkey. So while you were there, there were two, there are two of you. Like how much room is there after the bunk beds are put in there? There's less than 56 square feet uh, in the whole cell. And a lot less if you like don't count like the toilet, the, the actual bunk. Now I spent time there both single celled and with, with a cellmate. It depends on the number of guys they have in the unit. But when you're a journalist like I am, right, like you're one of the first people they, they double up. And when they try to double you up as a journalist, right, like they, they doubled up, they doubled me up with, with a guy who was a known informant, who was actually in the law library as an informant, right? And when I reacted negatively to that, they, they acted like, you know, I was the one who was, you know, misbehaving. You know, but again, these are all political cases. So to like force you to bunk with, with an informant and risk violence, right? Because that's something that's a direct risk of violence. And the Bureau of Prisons does not care. They do not care. Yeah. In general, is it, do people want to be doubled up or, or not? No, people generally want the, the single cell. You have no modicum of privacy any other way. Right. So you, you're doubled up. How often can you get, if there's not a lockdown, how often are you out of that cell? So you're out actually most of the day. Um, they pop the doors around six, seven in the morning. Uh, during the weekday schedule, you'd be out until just before four. Uh, and then there'd be a count and the count, you'd be released after the count anytime between like 4.30 and 5.30. Sometimes the guards are lazy, right? And they don't want to do the count right away. Or they don't want to unlock you right away after the count. So you can, even though the count's done, you can be you know, in your cell till 5.30, 6 o'clock. Then you're out for uh, dinner. Um, and then you stay out till about nine o'clock on the weekends. There's an additional count at 10 o'clock in the morning. And so you'd, you'd lock in at like nine 45 and be out, you know, around 10 30, 11. And so what's the communication management part of it? Like what's different about Terre Haute or Marion compared to a typical federal prison when it comes to your ability to communicate with the public, with your attorneys, with your family and so on? So the unit is entirely self-contained. So it's, it's part of a larger federal complex. But if you're like a regular prisoner in that complex, right, those times that you're out, you're not stuck in your housing unit. 
you can you can go uh, to like the athletic facilities, you can go to the sports fields. There's a lot more to do. In the CMU, when you're out, you're still kind of stuck in the sardine can. And the communications management, so elsewhere in the federal prison system, you get between 300 and 500 minutes a month of phone time, and that's kind of uh, in flux now with, with First Step Act and all that. And you get like in-person contact visits, like your family can come and like hug you. Uh, in the CMU, you get two 15-minute phone calls a week uh, max. You have no contact visits. Uh, you basically never leave uh, the little unit until you're either released or, or you're transferred. Uh, those phone calls elsewhere in the Bureau, they say they monitor, but there's so much call volume that they cannot really effectively monitor. They kind of keep recordings for a little while in case they have to go back and do something. But in the CMU, your phone calls are monitored in real time, and they can be cut off in real time. And so, you know, several times I was speaking with journalists and they would just cut the call off and they would never provide any justification for that. After NBC dropped the four part docuseries on my case, they just deleted my wife from my contact information, never provided me any written justification for that, uh, effectively banned me uh, on the phone without providing any written justification whatsoever. And, you know, you get lawyers involved and, and nothing really happens. The system is completely unwilling uh, to check their discretion. The judges just don't want to hear it. The judges in Terre Haute uh, get spun. They, they hear that, you know, this is the terrorist unit for like Al-Qaeda guys and that they, you know, whatever they file is frivolous. And these judges are mostly former federal prosecutors. Like you're, you're dead on arrival in court. I have a federal habeas uh, pending, you know, now that I've been released, but it's been pending since like July. Uh, fully briefed, right? And, and the judge won't rule on it, uh, <laughs> just to give you an example. And, and federal habeas is supposed to jump to the front of the, the list. It's the very first thing a federal judge is supposed to rule on. And in, in Terre Haute, it becomes the very last thing they'll rule on, especially if it looks like you've got a case. Let's talk a little bit about who goes out there, because I, re I remember from more than 10 years ago, there was a a lawsuit or there were complaints against the CMUs on religious grounds where the, the argument was you're sticking all of the Muslims in these prisons and you can't do that. That is discrimination based on religion. The Bureau of Prison response to that was, oh, well, we've got a couple of people convicted of eco-terrorism here and there. And so they kind of just threw them into it and said, well, look, it's not all, it's not all Muslims anymore. So you, you don't, you don't have your case anymore. When you were there, like what's, what's the kind of demographic and what's the profile of, of the kinds of people that you're with? At any given time, it's between about 30 and 45 percent uh, Muslims, most of them. It tends not to be like the big cases that you would actually associate with a unit like that. It tends to be like some 20 year old, uh, you know, guy who got indoctrinated over the Internet and was like trying to fly to Syria uh, and they catch him at the airport. Right. And he's never actually hurt anybody. He's like in some cases, these people were entrapped, right? And it, it tends to be those, those kinds of cases. Uh, these are not really the serious uh, terrorism cases that one would, would think they are. But these cases are worth a lot of money. Like the Bureau of Prisons gets a lot in their budget based on building these guys up as some like international threat, even though they've never like hurt anybody and, and had no serious potential to, to hurt anybody. Uh, and that's the majority of the Muslim cases there. Then you have uh, probably about 15% political cases and then the rest, they actually started changing the demographic after I started complaining that there was a high concentration of political cases. So now they're they're running through uh, guys who get like caught with a cell phone, you know, in federal prison, 
that was largely a reaction uh, to, to my coverage. It, it's definitely not what, what the public has sold. And these CMUs, they cost millions of dollars. They hire dozens of so-called intelligence analysts to review the cases there. My understanding is that the qualifications of these so-called intelligence analysts uh, wouldn't meet the bar at like the State Department or anywhere else. In a lot of cases, these are just former prison guards who have no special intelligence training that, that I've ever seen, right? But they do get these exorbitant salaries once the Bureau of Prisons kind of designates them as intelligence analysts. And, you know, the CMUs, they, they were started during Iraq and Afghanistan. And the idea there was that by mining the communications of these jihadis, right, they would come up with actionable intel to use in the war effort, right? And the one thing that, to my knowledge anyway, the CMU has never, ever produced is actionable intel to use in any war effort, you know, whatsoever. So how often would you wind up in solitary? What's that, uh, what's that system there? So I started doing the prerequisites to file a lawsuit that they wouldn't, that they didn't like, and they, they called that extortion and they threw me in solitary. How long that first time? Uh, so that was about a month and a half. And then they sold me up with that informant. And when I started talking to the media saying they sold me up with an informant, they threw me in solitary for another three, four months. Those are the two stints that I, that I did in solitary in the CMU. And the solitary cells in the CMU, by the way, are even worse than like the regular cells. Like they're insect infested, you know, cockroaches everywhere. There are serious like sewage issues. Uh, the water is not really drinkable. Um, and so that they go out of their way to make those solitary cells like very, very heinous. Um, and it's, it's something that Julian, I'm sad to say, uh, can expect to experience himself the first time he reaches out to a journalist, the first time someone tries to file a lawsuit to vindicate his First Amendment rights. You know, it's hell. What kind of insect in infestation? That sounds utterly terrifying. Uh, spiders, cockroaches, uh, various, you know, other, other insects that we couldn't identify. I actually, at one point, um, got in, it took some effort, but I got in a, a North American field guide. Uh, to insects and bugs, just so that we could identify all the various creepy crawlies and so that we would know, you know, what's potentially venomous and what's not, because they don't provide any, any training, any safety, any, you know, there's nothing, nothing to, you know, to tell you don't get stung by that one, don't get stung by that one, right? And there, there are, there's an insect there that, that's called a cow killer, okay? And it's, it's called a cow killer. Doesn't sound good. Yeah, it's not because its sting is so venomous that it would you know, actually kill a cow, but the sting is so painful that it can cause a stampede. So one of these things stings one cow, the cow bucks, right, because it's in so much pain. This causes a stampede and you end up with a herd of dead cows, right? And that insect is, is crawling around the wreck yard out there. And again, there's no signage, no warning, no anything. If you, if you don't have the knowledge of the guys who are already there to say, to say, hey, you know, don't get stung by that guy, you might step right on it. What's it like trying to sleep knowing that the cell's crawling with bugs? You know, in my cell, I always slept on the top bunk, like even when I didn't have a, a cellmate because they're just less likely to, to get at you up there. But yeah, I've like, I've like, I woke up there with like a, a cockroach, like staring at me, like on my chest, just like staring at me. And I'm like, oh, hi. And I had to like brush them, brush them off the, brush them off the bed. Guys wake up with spider bites. Uh, you know, like, like big rash going all the way down the leg. Yeah, just nothing is done. I filed remedies all the way up to Washington uh, in the Bureau of Prisons saying, you guys got to do something about this. And they basically said, we don't see any bugs. You guys are, you guys are fine. 
and they, they just lie. I mean, they lie in, in writing on federal documents. They sign them. You know, if, if you see something, anything from the government talking about the conditions in the CMU, you know, for, in, from my perspective, they're just lying. And this is all related because, you know, as people I'm sure have gathered by this point in the conversation, you're the kind of person that is going to be a squeaky wheel. Like they, they can do whatever they want to you and you're not going, you're not going to stop, you know, pushing back and fighting, fighting for your rights. That is also the kind of person that they're going to retaliate against constantly. Yeah. They're trying to break you. That's their goal. Really. I mean, they, they'll never admit to it, but there's, there's a, a widely known uh, thing among the CMU prisoners that if you kind of go to them and you say, Hey, look, I'll stop, just get me out of here. And you drop all your lawsuits and you stop complaining. That's the one time they'll, they'll let you out. And there are they, no staff ever kind of threatened me, but I, I've talked to a lot of guys who were threatened, who, you know, staff told them, if you don't stop, we're going to make sure you never see your kids again. If, if you don't stop, we're going to, we're going to keep you here. Or like complaining is not the way to get out of this unit. Right. That's that's kind of the, the one you hear the most is that like complaining is not the way to get out of this unit. The way you got into it and the way you stay in it. You stay in. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the implication. Right. And Julian Assange is not the kind of person either that is just going to just sit back and and accept the fate that he's dealt. He's somebody that's always been all uh, completely about transparency. I mean, the only reason they're prosecuting Julian, let's just be real here, is because he told the truth about some things that people in power, you know, found really embarrassing. Yes. Without that, there would be no prosecution. They're, they're, they're grasping at straws to try to make a federal violation out of something that is arguably protected press conduct. And that's why the Obama administration didn't prosecute him in the first place. They had the so-called New York Times problem. If we prosecute him, how do we justify that we're not prosecuting the New York Times? So I understand he's become somewhat of a, a controversial figure because of a lot of the media narrative that has been ran against him. But there was a time in this country 10 years ago when he was you know, widely perceived as a hero. And very little in terms of his conduct has, has changed since that time. So you know, his case, my case, many other cases that are you know, at kind of the periphery of, of prosecutorial discretion, right? Those are the kinds of cases that end up in the CMU. And we as a country, I think, have to ask ourselves uh, uh, an existential question of can we tolerate, you know, these kinds of units? Because you go to prison and you're supposed to keep your First Amendment rights, right? There's no valid what they call penological reason. Like there's nothing relevant to like protection of the public, rehabilitation, like any of what the supposed goals of prison are, right? That says you shouldn't be able to speak. You shouldn't be able to speak to the media. You shouldn't be able to file in court. But those are the things the CMU exists to curtail, right? That's, that's why those units are there. And the, the actual you know, stated purpose of the unit, like keep the public safe, help fight the, the war on terror. Again, the units never produced a single piece of actionable intel you know, for that. And they've slept, they've missed you know, more than a few of these things. There was a, a shootout in Texas where um, the mass shooter was trying to get um, a female federal prisoner freed from kind of the female equivalent of these CMUs. And there was no intelligence to say that he was he was going to do that. There was, they didn't stop that. She was, she was in one of these units, supposedly to stop that very kind of mass killing. And these people missed it. And Americans died. And had they not put her, put her there in the first place, frankly, like it wouldn't have happened. And I'm not saying that justifies the shooting, of course, but if you're going to put people in these kinds of units 
to stop terrorist actions, and you're going to cost, you're going to take millions of dollars from taxpayers to do it, then you ought to at least stop the terrorist actions. And they're not even doing that. They fail at that. Let's even grant them, though, in some imaginary world where they actually, you know, managed at some point to do that with somebody who was convicted of a, a charge of terrorism. How do they justify putting Julian Assange or you in a CMU when there's not even any claim that you're even remotely connected, that either of you are remotely connected to terrorism? We actually had a district court ruling in my case, the, the federal judge who's not a pro-defendant judge. He's known as a, a hanging judge, a very harsh sentencing judge, right? He was Aaron Swartz's judge. Mm-hmm. And we actually had that judge rule that the government could not say, could not imply that anything I did was terrorism, right? Mine was an activism case. We actually had a ruling from the bench before the trial that said this, right? That argument would literally be frivolous in my case because a district court already decided the matter and the government never appealed it to challenge it, right? So the thing is, they don't really have to justify it at all. That's really the scary thing. The relevant precedent in the Supreme Court is called Sandin v. Connor, okay? And the Supreme Court basically said, unless what the prison is doing is an atypical and significant hardship as compared to the normal you know, hardships of prison life, right? then the prisoner has no due process right to challenge his placement wherever the system wants to put you. So what they do in the CMUs, like you asked before, you know, how, how, how often are you out of your cell? So, you know, you're out most of the time. The reason you're out most of the time is not out of the goodness of their heart. It's because they have to say, we treat them just like any other prisoner. This is a general population unit. They actually try to maintain that the CMUs are a general population unit. But then you look elsewhere in in what they say and and just in what they do, and it becomes very clear that this is not really a a general population unit. But so long as they keep as long as they they keep lying and saying it's general population and as long as the federal courts continue to credit them, that it's a general population unit, they can really put whoever they want in these CMUs. And I guess when it comes to the definition of atypical, it's in the eye of the judge and and the prison, because when I think about what you said about getting just, what, two 15-minute calls a month, that, to me, feels like an atypical and radical departure. Yeah, that's mentioned no contact visits. I wasn't able to hug my wife for four years. I feel naive uh, asking as if they're going to give some rational answer to it, but like, w- what did they say to you when you would challenge them and say, this is an atypical deviation from the rest of the federal prison system? No, they, they just say it's a general population unit. You have all the you know, same things everyone else on the compound has. That where, where it's not, it's because we have, to, we have to manage your communications to ensure public safety. Oh, they go back to the public safety argument. Yeah, even though there's, you know, we had a federal judge rule that, you know, Mine was an activism case with, with no real public safety uh, <laughs> ramifications. And the government, in my case, uh, failed to prove that anything that I did affected a single human individual. They put it before the jury, right? They asked the jury to find that something I did had affected or even potentially, potentially affected a single human being. And the jury would not convict on that. So they got me for financial damage to multi-million and multi-billion dollar institutions that tortured and crippled a human child. But that's actually what I was convicted of. And when the government sought to convict me for actually being a potential danger to even one human person, 
They were not able to convict me of that, but they still sent me to a CMU. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What was the time in solitary like for you? What are the phases that, that you go through? So the first time I was in solitary, I was on a hunger strike. And that actually lasted 42 days. It was the second longest hunger strike I did uh, in federal prison. Um, the longest one, which we, we covered together at, at HuffPost, uh, was 100 days. And that was, that was during the election. So after that 100-day uh, hunger strike, I had lost a lot of muscle mass. Like I prepared for that 100-day hunger strike for six months. People ask me all the time, how do, you, how do you do that? How do you survive 100 days? And the answer is you prepare ahead of time, right? So I, I prepared for nine months. Uh, <laughs> to survive that. So that the, the, the second time, uh, you know, I didn't have that preparation. I, I had lost a lot of uh, lean body mass. It was actually much more concerning from a health perspective the, the second time than the first time. But that colored my experience in CMU solitary quite a bit because it, it's one thing to be in solitary. It's another thing to be in solitary and uh, reject, I think it was 105 straight meals where I did not eat. You know, I was trying to fight my case at, at, at that point. I was still up on appeal. I was trying to change attorneys. Your legal calls are pretty much entirely at their discretion. They open your legal mail. They open and read my legal mail right in front of me um, when I was in solitary the first time, even though they're not supposed to do that, right? Legal mail is supposed to be kind of sacrosanct. Like they can inspect it for contraband. They can like make sure no drugs fall out uh, when they open the envelope, but they're not supposed to read it. But they, they went through my incoming legal mail reviewing for content and actually confiscated things. Like parts of my appellate brief, they would not let me have. Mm -hmm. When I was changing, uh, trying to change lawyers, um, they made that very, very difficult. And it was, it was something. That it, had I not had uh, my lovely and talented wife Dana on the outside fighting for me, and, and that's something most of these guys do not have, is you know, like a spouse, a significant other. You know, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So they, they, they make it very, very hard to fight your case. And, and that adds a lot of stress, too. If you, you, know, you feel you have meritorious claims, you want to get these claims heard before the court. So the, the first time I'm in, in solitary in the CMU, I'm on a hunger strike. I'm trying to change attorneys. They're interfering with my legal mail. I mean, they're, they're basically trying to drive you to kill yourself. Like that, to me, that seemed like what the goal was. Like if, if I had hanged myself in that cell, they would have just wiped their hands of it. And they were all considered that, you know, a, a squeaky wheel, as you put it, ha had now been silenced. Right. Do you have books in solitary? Do you get to leave at all for your to go outdoors, but only by yourself? Like, how, how does that work? So there are books. The bureau provides uh, really kind of shoddy, like just kind of like pulp fiction, you know, kind of stuff. 
thankfully in, in the CMU, since you, you have this concentration of political prisoners and, and you know, it's really a very smart crowd in that unit compared to the rest of federal prisons. So the books have been interspersed with, with books that other guys uh, receive from their families, right? So you actually have like really good reading material. It is, it is one of the best libraries hmm. in the Bureau of Prisons is the irony, but it's not that way because the Bureau you know, provide good reading material. It's that way because they only allow you to keep so many books in your cell. And so you have to you either can donate them or, or like give them away. But what ends up happening is that the library gets filled um, with, with really interesting um, and, and like a lot of the classics, a lot of the Western canon. Um, you know, I'd say there's a better selection there than there is in most high school, uh, public high school libraries. Um, so that, that's one of the, the good things. I, I did get a lot of good reading so how much time do you, did you spend in both of these uh, CMUs? So I was in Terre Haute from April 1st, 2019 through January 21st, 2021. Then I was in Marion from January 21st, 2021 to, I think, November 10th, uh, 2022. And then uh, again in Terre Haute from November 10th, 2022 till, uh, I think, June 9th of 2023. What was it like when you finally got out of there? I, I, words fail me. Uh, because you're out in, in public, like they just put you on a Greyhound bus. Like when I was released, right, it's like they just drop you off at the bus station and you're out in public again and you can talk to people. Like 24 hours earlier, you're just... Yeah, you're, you're completely cut off, isolated from the world. Uh, you know, they blocked Dana. So like I, I couldn't talk to my wife for for seven months with, with no kind of process, no official like anything ever handed to me to, to justify it. Uh, you know, and you get out and you get to the Greyhound station and it's just... Um, you know, can I borrow your cell phone? I need to make a call. <laughs> I need to make a call real quick. And and like they didn't want me to leave with my my legal work. So I had 210 pounds of documents about the CMU uh, and, and about my case, but between the two, right? And I still have them. But they would not allow my lawyer to come to the prison the day before I was released to pick up my legal documents, even though their own regulations kind of specify that they have to allow you know, a prisoner to exchange legal documents with an attorney and they knew I was being released. They were really hoping that they would make it logistically difficult for me to bring my legal documents with me and that I would then trust them to mail these documents home. But having spoken to guys who had, who had been through the CMU program and, and some of them, it's like their second, third, fourth trip through the CMU program, I, I was not prepared to rely on the Bureau of Prisons to mail these very sensitive, very compromising legal documents home. So I actually had to like carry by hand 210 pounds of legal documents to the Greyhound stop. And then Dana arranged for somebody to meet me there. And I you know, put the legal documents in that person's car. And then uh, that person, you know, bless her heart, uh, took them to UPS and, and had them shipped home for me. And that's the only way that I have these documents that show you know, in detail, the kind of thing that Julian uh, can expect and like the write-ups, like the bogus uh, disciplinary charges that I got for trying to speak to the media, trying to litigate, uh, trying to tell people what's going on, trying to help other guys who I feel are wrongfully incarcerated uh, in the CMUs uh, litigate. And there, there's one case in particular that I really want to mention, and that's uh, Donald Reynolds Jr. You know, his case is uh, related to Operation Fast and Furious which was when the Justice Department walked uh, high-powered, uh, fully automatic, so-called cop-killing 
uh, firearms to the Mexican drug cartels. You had mentioned Chapo uh, earlier, right? And so this was when the Justice Department was actually handing those cartels armor-piercing firearms. Yeah, this became a scandal under the Eric Holder attorney generalship. Yeah, so so Donnie was a, a black NRA member, firearms collector. He had uh, a lot of like historic weapons, like World War II era uh, firearms and a lot of high-powered stuff. And they went to him. They asked him to become an informant for them. He refused. They buried him as a first-time nonviolent offender with a life plus 75-year sentence. So they actually hit Donnie off with a longer sentence than El Chapo received. And it, it looks to me and to others like Donnie is wholly innocent, and they basically just did this to keep him quiet. And we actually we had the American conservative from the other side of the aisle do a months-long investigation into Donnie's case. And the American conservative ended up recommending clemency for Donnie because of the prosecutorial irregularities. And then a, a different organization, similar name, but the American conservative union on the other side of the aisle, not really known for taking a, a pro-defendant, you know, anti-law enforcement kind of stance, also recommended clemency for Donnie because of these prosecutorial uh, irregularities. What charges they end up hitting him with? Uh, drug trafficking and um, using firearms in pursuit of, of drug trafficking. But here's the thing, they never found any drugs on Donnie, never. They searched his house, they searched his parents' house, they never found anything. And he was a player in this entire scandal. So the, th- so the thinking is, from your perspective, that you know, holding him up somewhere is an effective way to do PR for this scandal. Is that what you're thinking? Or what's, what's the rationale for why in particular they would go after him? I think that in his case, you have a lot of what are called Brady violations, which are discovery violations. Donnie was entitled, Donnie's defense was entitled to information about Operation Fast and Furious to prepare his defense, which he never received, right? And if it comes out that this information was never turned over to his defense attorneys, well, then that's a big issue because then his conviction is going to have to be overturned. And if they choose to continue to prosecute the case, He's entitled to all this information about Fast and Furious, which the House committees were trying to obtain from the White House, and the Obama White House asserted executive privilege to quash those subpoenas. Well, you can't assert executive privilege to quash Brady, right? Donnie's entitled to that information if they're coming for his liberty, which, which they are, right? And Donnie had no idea that it was Fast and Furious. It took years for information to come out about Fast and Furious, for Donnie to put it together, right, that this was likely Fast and Furious. And then when these months-long investigations were done, lo and behold, the names involved in his case are some of the same names involved in Fast and Furious. The dates all line up as one would expect them to line up. It's, it's really uncanny. So there's, there's a piece at the American Conservative about it called The Knoxville Kingpin Who Wasn't. And that has more of the details about it. But this is the type, this is another great example of a CMU case, right? The Obama administration literally asserted executive privilege to stop any investigation into Fast and Furious. Here you have an innocent guy, right, who's being held in a CMU to keep a lid on that, even to this day. And I'm convinced of that. And I think the facts do bear it out, but people can can read, you know, read the investigation and they can come to their own conclusions. What's he like? Donnie's a great guy. He's a smart guy. Uh, he was a businessman. He ran four four businesses before um, they locked him up. He was married before they locked him up. He's a father. His father worked at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, had a security clearance. He's a great friend to have. 
um, and he doesn't deserve uh, at all what's happening to him. And I, I really hope someday uh, the truth comes out. Donnie is, is one of the, the many guys who helped keep me safe while I was there. He was also the, the unit barber, so he cut everyone's hair. And he's a funny guy. He's got a great sense of humor. Uh, you know, you'd think after they, they do all this to you, right, like it'd, it'd be very hard to keep your head up. Right. And, and Donnie, you know, maintains his sense of humor. How old is he now? So he's a few years older than I am. So he's in his 40s. He's in his early 40s. And looking at life. He's doing life. I mean, he's been locked up longer than I was. He's been locked up since like 2011. I, I, I may be off by a year or two there. And he's been in the CMU practically the entire time. And you mentioned keeping you safe. What is the violence like there? It's a small place. And I don't know if that makes it less or more violent. Yeah, six months before I got there, one of the jihadis um, uh, garroted to death one of the minimum security prisoners there and stabbed another guy 11 times. And they just completely covered that up. There, there was a press release that there had been a death uh, at the Terre Haute um, federal complex, but they did not mention that it was uh, the CMU. There are multiple theories about what kind of predicated that attack, but the one thing that everyone seems to agree is that the, uh, you know, the Bureau of Prisons knew ahead of time that it was going to happen and did nothing to stop it. You know, there is uh, sectarian violence, but, um, you know, like I'm a brown Jew and they put me in a unit full of radical jihadi Muslims. Like, it's hard to say that that, that itself wasn't an assassination attempt. Um, what they weren't banking on, though, is that the government's saying this whole time that I'm a member of Anonymous, right? And Anonymous has, a, you know, a fairly good reputation in the Middle East after the Arab Spring. So, you know, it, it didn't work out the way they, they thought it would. So you you were you were cool? Yeah, I was I was cool. I do a lot of legal work for guys. You know, I'm, I'm like the resident jailhouse lawyer. Uh, anywhere I go, <laughs> and so that 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 always keeps you safe. Like if you're headed to federal prison through no fault of your own. Pick up a Black's Law Dictionary, get good with the law, because you will become uh, an ind indispensable person. Um, but the, the thing is about prison, especially about that unit, it, like it's never going to be like a one-on-one. -on -one. Like it's it's him and his boys versus you and whoever's going to get your back. And that's also what is potentially so very dangerous, you know, about these units. These units are a powder keg just waiting for a spark to go off. And in, in 2018, before I got there, they had that spark go off and, you know, one person died, another person was stabbed 11 times. And since you got out, you mentioned all of that uh, information that you were able to, to take with you. I, I know you've been in touch with Julian Assange's le legal team. I, I don't know what you can say about that. How are they feeling about this upcoming hearing? And were they able to make use of any of the uh, insider CMU knowledge that you were able to give them? So in terms of their feeling about the hearing, um, you're, I'm going to defer to them. You're going to really have to speak to them on that matter. They were limited by the time I got out, right? The lower court uh, proceedings had, all, had already been concluded. And so they were limited to that record on appeal. So I, I don't know that they were able to actually use any of the documents that I got to them because it was just too late by the time those documents got there. Now, if the case gets reversed, if he gets to go back to the lower courts, then I think potentially some of the documents that I have are really potentially useful. I, I don't know what they've used and, and what they haven't used. Uh, presumably it's a public docket and, and we can see, but I, I think unfortunately, very unfortunately for Julian, my experience and, and my records in the, in the legal sense 
uh, will not really come to bear until the next CMU extradition case. And at that point, all this stuff can be briefed in the, in the district court, in the lower court, right, where it will become part of the record of the case and, and be arguable on appeal and on appeal to the European Court of Human Rights. I think one thing I, I just want to leave people with, you, you know, you're no fool. You knew what kind of system you were getting into. And the prosecutors, um, you know, offered a plea deal um, that would have given a you know, significant, because I remember you and I talking about this at the time, you know, would have given you a significantly shorter prison sentence. I don't remember exactly the, the details now, but I remember you saying, it's not about that. I am not ashamed of what I did. Like I was standing up for Justine. I'm going to take this all, all the way to the jury. And if the jury, you know, finds me guilty, then so be it. That's just an unusual amount of courage, I would say, to w- willingly stare down you know, a much more extended sentence under brutal conditions. And I think that it's a fact that that is unusual courage because I think something like 95% of federal cases, some extraordinary number of federal cases end, end in plea deals. Yeah, it's higher than 95. The trial system is so unfair in the federal system. I mean, it's not a fair system. And I would invite anyone to actually who finds that shocking as I did initially, right? I get that it's a shocking thing. If this is America. You expect the courts to be fair. Go do a little research on, on the federal system. Look at cases like mine. Uh, like they would not even let me plead defense of another, right? Like they wouldn't let my jury consider it, that I acted to defend a human life, right? Like they found that defense inconvenient. So they simply prevented the jury from hearing it. You know, I think any system that has a 95 plus percent uh, success rate for the prosecution, you can pretty fairly say is tilted in their favor. And that's why so many people take deals. Well, they want you to believe that these prosecutors are just that good and, and they're just that righteous. Just absolute geniuses, yes. Yeah, just, just, but again, just, just look at it and just look at the cases they're bringing. Look at the case they're bringing against Julian. Look at the case they brought against Barrett Brown or Jeremy Hammond. Not Barrett Brown, that's who you were trying to think of earlier. Yeah, yeah. But just, just look at the cases they bring, right? And look at the cases that they, that they do not bring, right? You had the 2008 financial crisis, right? Who went to jail? The whistleblower. <laughs> You have the Bush torture program, right? Who went to jail? The whistleblower. Right. And look at the the war crimes that Julian Assange exposed, the only people to uh, go to prison, Chelsea Manning and and Julian Assange, right? Julian, yeah. Well, Marty, thank you for fighting and thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Ryan. That was Marty Gottesfeld and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is our lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Legal review by David Brelo and Elizabeth Sanchez. Leonardo Fireman transcribed this episode. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. And obviously, subscribe to Intercepted as well. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.